0: All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Dealmaker Show. So today we're going to be talking about the cannabis industry, and we're going to have a lawyer-turned-founder, uh, just like myself, so recovering lawyer. So, uh, so I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Steve White. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: So originally born and raised in Arizona. So how was life there?
1: Uh, life was good. Well, I'm, I'm one of few people that are born and raised in Arizona, but uh, life is good. Uh, in arizona except for those summer months
0: so what's happening in the summer months you're going to the tunnels
1: the summer months it's so hot you need to be inside and under air conditioning at all times
0: very cool very cool obviously you left you left when it came you know time to to, to go after your studies you went to georgetown is that right
1: i did i, I started at arizona state university and i went to georgetown so that i could um so that i could work on capitol hill uh, always had an interest in politics, and an opportunity arose to spend a little time at Georgetown, uh, work uh, as an intern in Senator John McCain's office. Jumped at that opportunity; it was it was a great one.
0: So, what what really got you into politics? Because obviously, now you know indirectly, you're still dealing with with you know, regulatory changes. You know, like with the you know potential impact of politics on on your business. So, so what really got you into politics?
1: That's a great question. I don't know the answer to it. Um, It's always been an interest and it was always an interest of mine until um, spending too much time working on some campaigns for folks who ended up not being uh, great elected officials. Once you go through that experience and you feel in any way responsible for something like that, I I became a little disenchanted with the political process for quite some time. Um, But getting back in, in, once I got into the cannabis business, I didn't really have a choice. Um, so it, it is a it is a political um, industry uh, just because of the all the constant changing of laws that affects um, everything that we do at, at Harvest.
0: So obviously, when it comes to politics, everyone really has their view from reading the press and from the outside. But what are the views when you're in the inside?
1: You know, one of the things that I've learned um, and that that is that it kind of sucks uh, when you when you come to the realization that at certain levels, it doesn't matter what the right thing to do is, that oftentimes politics and what happens politically is all about the um, preservation or the or the capture of power. Um, And I give you a, a great example. Um. We we know that the Safe Banking Act um, is wildly supported by um, everybody, um, and we know that it passed in the House overwhelmingly in a bipartisan way, and in the Senate they have the votes, but it's not politically expedient for that um, that piece of legislation to be voted on, and so you have you have folks who are playing a game, um, and that that actually affects the public safety um, it affects the way that banks conduct their business, and it affects the fastest growing industry in the united states and and the reason that that's happening is for political not not real important reasons
0: got it so obviously, after you know this experience, you started looking at law schools so why why going into law
1: well i I had um it's it's I, I laugh about it now. At at age thirteen, I had really two career paths: um, either uh, playing for the Pittsburgh Steelers or uh, becoming a practicing lawyer. When the Pittsburgh Steeler route didn't look like it was working out, um, I I was dedicated to practicing law at some point in my life. And so everything I did from uh, late in high school through college was dedicated towards. Getting into um, law school and you know the the event what I what I knew would be eventually uh, a law practice.
0: So what kind of what kind of law practice was that?
1: I I've, I've practiced a variety of different things um, and I've done things from the um, really fun, uh, so trials and things like that, which I really enjoyed, to stuff that was I had some some bites at some things that were less fun, like. Um, Doing analysis to determine whether or not an event was covered by an insurance policy. Got I it. fully respect the lawyers who do that, but all day long, that is so boring.
0: I hear you. I hear you. So so then let's talk about like, then, you know, after five or six years, you know, of, of being in law and, and now, you know, like doing your own practice, then you start to question yourself is this what I want to do? Uh, and obviously, you know, things tur- took a different turn. What happened there?
1: Yeah. There was, I went from uh, practicing in different firm environments to thinking that that my unhappiness with that process had to do with the structure uh, of the law firm environment. So I, uh, with a partner, started my own firm, and we we really stopped and analyzed what 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 a law firm really needs to have and uh, to provide clients with the best service possible, and we we did things that were very different at the time, and. For a while that that was fulfilling we had done something unique we had done something novel we were providing services to client at a cheaper rate and we were doing uh, better even as a result but you start looking at when you're when you're a lawyer and, and you think about real success as a lawyer what what happens when you when you have done something that really makes a name for yourself is generally you've won a case that you shouldn't have won Right, so justice, if you do really well as a litigator, justice was not served. And I've got a handful of cases that I look back on and, and say, I did, a, I did a great job for my client, um, and I, was, uh, I, got a, I got a great result for the client. But if you think about, um, in, in the human event, um, your contribution to society, to society, you start questioning whether or not the profession of law is really as dignified as I thought as a 13-year-old. Um, and then I, I, I just really became, um, a little bit disenchanted with it. It was not fulfilling. And I started looking at upper uh, other opportunities and, and cannabis was one of those opportunities in 2011.
0: So then tell us, how did you come across cannabis?
1: It was on the ballot in Arizona in 2010 and my phone was ringing. Um, and I had, I had clients and referrals from clients and friends asking me how they get involved in the business and. I was trying to figure out as a lawyer, it was, it was, it was new and, and it was exciting. And, and as, a, as somebody who'd been practicing law at that point for then about you know, 10, 12, 10 to 12 years, it, it, your practice starts to get a little bit stale, so I, it was something that was interesting, something a new subject area. Um, but I ultimately determined that because of the way that they were allocating licenses, I could only effectively really represent one client. And so of, of all the people that sought services from me, I had to choose one. Um, and I ended up choosing uh, a couple of friends who owned a design build construction company. Uh, and largely I did it because they were very successful in, in construction and they were really fun to work with. Knowing that starting a business is quite challenging, I thought that second element uh, of, of they, them being people that I really liked was, was critically important. And it turns out that that was true.
0: So then what happened next?
1: Well, um, I chose them. We sat down um, and, and one of the guys asked me what I was going to charge. I said, well, this is my hourly rate and it depends on what you want me to do. And then he gave me a list um, about a mile long of things that, that he wanted from me. And I said, uh, over the next two years, that's somewhere between a half a million and two million bucks, probably. It's going to be a lot of work. And he looks at me and he says, "You want to be partners um and that was the that was for for me the moment the first time I really considered it um, but my answer was immediately yes um but and and so then we ultimately went into business together and and that was how harvest got started
0: and I know that at the beginning you guys uh, took a lo- a look at the potential returns and and you had a a preliminary judgment that you know it was uh, probably now looking back, probably you would have thought about it differently. Why? Why is that the case?
1: Well, you know, it, it's it's really a unique opportunity. You're sitting in a in a state where you know people are are consuming marijuana, um, and they're doing it at high in some instances at high rates. And the state has decided, or the people in in this case have decided that they want that. That industry to be a regulated industry, one that's um, regulated and taxed rather than one that's that's um, done run mainly by by criminals and so the you're looking at at a business that already has demand, and for us we couldn't think of anything that was like that where they were going to say, okay you've got an industry that right now you're not permitted to participate in we're going to change that fact, and we're going to limit the number of people that can participate in it because We want to carefully regulate the activity. Um, When you sit down and you look at, you pull out an Excel spreadsheet and you do that in 2010 or 11, you look at the entire cannabis market and you say, okay, you divide the entire cannabis market in the state of Arizona amongst, you know, 130 players. Um, And you think, wow, that's a really big business for each of those businesses. What you, (laughs) there's a lot you don't uh, consider, which is, that the unregulated market is going to continue to exist and it's gonna be very difficult to transition people from the unregulated market to the regulated one. That there's gonna be all sorts of challenges with your business because you're federally illegal so you don't have access to traditional banking services, you get taxed at a higher rate, Um, you can't transport product across state lines. There's all of these restrictions that make, make life a lot more difficult than you would have imagined. So when you look, when you originally do your calculations, you think it's going to be an incredibly profitable business. And then you dive into it and and some of the realities start hitting, slapping you across the face.
0: Got it. So then, then for example, with the business, what were the early days like?
1: The early days were interesting. Um, Just trying to find space. Uh, So convincing a landlord that if you moved into their building, uh they wouldn't have the building taken away by the federal government. I mean, just something as basic as that we probably every for every twenty landlords we talked to, we probably got a single yes wow. um and and that was the that was the rate and then on top of that, you look at the the municipal zoning ordinances that are enacted, some of which in the state of Arizona actually in fact banned it completely um others you know pushed uh dispensaries into heavy residential areas or things like that um and so you've got you just have incredible challenges just getting off the ground then you had a governor at the time who just said you know what i'm not implementing the program i don't care what the voters say i'm not doing it um and so you have you have challenges that you never imagined at that point
0: so basically how what like what ended up being the business model for the business
1: well, what, what you learn over time is all of those problems are temporary, um, that municipalities start figuring out that this is a regular retail business that actually is really quite complementary for a number of others. Um, and that if you really want to promote public safety, you want to put that, you want to shine a light on it. You don't want to bury it in an industrial area. Um, and so landlords started changing their mind. Uh, city officials started changing their mind. Um, You had lawsuits that required the governor to start a program and that and that invalidated certain zoning ordinances that previously um, prohibited people from locating in areas. Over time, the regulations loosen as people figure out that that a cannabis business is not a bad thing uh, for individuals, for for kids, for for communities. It's actually quite a positive thing. But that transition is one that takes time. Um, and there are a number of people who I always say, facts can't change their opinion. Um, and so you will always will have people who will resist at all costs uh, the move to normalcy.
0: So in this case, you guys now have a vertically integrated operation. What does that mean?
1: That means we do everything in the value chain from um, uh, cultivating uh, marijuana to turning it into products in, the, in a manufacturing product process to actually retailing it to consumers. In addition to that, we have our own in-state re- in-house state in real estate team, legal teams. Uh, we do all of our marketing in-house. We actually go and get market access on our own. So, we apply for licenses and, and win them, and that's how we get into certain states. Um, so, for us, vertically integrated is a very, uh, it's a significant process. Um, and it also puts together parts of a business that you just don't see elsewhere. You don't see other businesses that retail, that farm, and that manufacture. It just, it just doesn't exist elsewhere.
0: Got it. And, and in this case, how did you guys finance the operation?
1: <laughs> we, we, uh, we struggled is how we did it. Um, we, we were not a wealthy group. And so we did what we could with what we had. And it was really good for us as a growing business to figure out by necessity how to run a successful business. Because if we didn't run, if we weren't good operators, our business would close. It wasn't as if we had deep pockets and we could just, you know, reach back and, and raise another million dollars. We got our first store open. We didn't even have a million dollars into the entire business. And we needed that store to be profitable in order for us to build a cultivation facility. And then we needed to, when we developed an appetite for growth, we needed to be able to determine whether a, um, a, a state set of regulations was set up that you could run a profitable business. Because if we ended up in a state that where we were going to lose money for a long period of time, our growth would have come to a stop. So we financed it by being cheap, by being efficient, and, and just by being really a gritty group of, of business operators.
0: Very cool, and up until now like how how much capital has been raised to date
1: uh, well up until November of two thousand 2018 we had total invested capital of under eighteen million dollars in conjunction with our um, reverse takeover and going public uh, we raised about two hundred and twenty million dollars. we then took um, we raised another hundred million dollars. Um, and then we have done some incremental financing since then. So times have changed quite a bit. So people now talk about the, the, how this market is so capital constrained. And a lot of my, I just want to grab them and shake them and say, you you have no idea what capital constraint is. Capital constraint is when you're, when you're trying to operate a business and you're doing it on credit cards, because that's the only way that you have access to capital. Um, you know, so recently we announced um, a raise where where we took in about fifty six million dollars in capital, um, and we did so in a very challenging environment. And we have opportunities to raise more. And we're unfortunately or unfortunately for our business that's that's going to be an ongoing part of what we do: raising capital and, and you know taking out previous financing with more attractive uh, rates with with new opportunities. So it is now something we do full time.
0: And, you know, it's interesting, you know, like in terms of uh, of trends, too, you know, like where things were and and where things are now and where things are going. No, I mean, this used to be an industry where there was drug dealers. And now we're talking about like an industry where there is regulation, where there is publicly traded companies. I mean, what a what an incredible turnaround and change no?
1: It is. Um, it, so there is a uh, we 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 were originally obviously we started this business it was a group of group of people who didn't have cannabis experience and we were unique uh to be to not be a group of people who are turning a, a marijuana hobby into a business um that was the the vast majority of people and we went and we sought out expertise from other places and some of the things that we saw were pretty remarkable uh we uh, i remember Uh, groups that wouldn't show, would tell us what what phenomenal cultivators they were. And then when we asked them to show us, they wouldn't take us to a facility or uh, they'd have a requirement, like they pick you up at some convenience store, put a uh, blindfold on you, drive you around for a while and lead you into a facility. Not surprisingly, some of those businesses um, uh, are not in existence anymore, um, have been run into issues with law enforcement. Um, you know, we've made ourselves hires of people that we um, that that were transitioning from the unregulated market, and and thought that this was going to be the same thing. We we had I'll never forget the uh, a, a dispute we had with somebody that we wanted to hire, who was shocked that we were going to report his income to the IRS. And he was explaining to us that he doesn't pay taxes. That's not how this works. <laughs> and we, our response is actually it does work that way now. That's not <laughs> how we operate, and we can't operate that way. Right. Um, we ultimately cut ties with that individual for that, and uh, and then ultimately we did find out that he was um, cannabis was not the uh, only uh, drug that he was cultivating or manufacturing, uh, and that he was trying to develop infrastructure to continue to do that around our facility, so we immediately cut ties with that individual but but the types of folks that we run into today are so different right we are now working with uh universities who are producing students with certifications in in specialties that that directly uh, relate to what we do as a business not people who uh were successful underground operators
0: and why do you think uh, you know one of the things that that it's really occurring to me is I've had the the opportunity to speak with with you know and do interviews with with some of the top guys you know in in the space you know including yourself and and one thing that it's really coming across to me is that most of you guys are 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 trained lawyers so so why is that the case
1: <laughs> That's probably bode's very poorly for the industry um, there's There's two types of people that I've seen that lead organizations successfully. One is somebody with a legal background. The reason that's true is because so much of your business and how you set up your business is directly related to the regulations under which you you operate that business. And then, if you're looking to expand your business into other places, the, the rules and regulations and laws in that other place are going to be completely different than the one you just came from. So the lawyer's skill uh, of being able to understand what is permitted in an, in a certain environment um, is a really critical one to navigate uh, through what are otherwise very difficult, in some instances, very difficult setups. The other group that I've seen do particularly well are folks who come from private equity backgrounds. The reason that's true is if you look at cannabis assets for a particular organization, they're like completely different businesses. So think about what we were talking about before, where you have uh, farming, you have manufacturing, you have retail under one umbrella. Now do it in another state, so it's a different type of farming, a different type of manufacturing, and a whole different set of rules for retail um, development. Private equity people have a have a greater understanding of how to um kind of aggregate different businesses that have slightly different focuses and put them together in a way that makes sense. So there are lawyers and, and people with private equity backgrounds are very overrepresented in cannabis for sure.
0: That's pretty amazing. And and how big is Harvest today, the company?
1: So as a company we're quite large. Uh we have more than a thousand employees. Um we have operations across many states. Um Across the U.S., we have, um, you know, development ongoing, and many, many more. Uh, we're one of the largest cannabis companies in the United States, and if you're one of the largest cannabis companies in the United States, that by necessity means you're one of the largest cannabis companies in the world. Um, and so, there are a handful of really well-operated cannabis companies in the United States, poised uh, to do great things, and, and Harvest is one of those.
0: Very cool. And why would you say that you're more more bullish than ever on the cannabis space?
1: You know, it it's because of the experience, I think. And and when I look back and I and I and I think about where we came from, and I think back about the, to the to the point where, when I first started and I didn't really believe that cannabis could truly be medicine until I started seeing it. And then I've seen um you know, we celebrated the day we saw a poll that said 50, more than 50.1% of people were in favor of medical cannabis. And today it's over 90%. In fact, over 60% of people are in favor of legalizing cannabis for recreational use across the country. And so few states have followed. So we know that the the environment or the industry is going to follow popular opinion. Popular opinion has changed, and so we have huge opportunities in states that haven't even decided to implement a medical program, and so many more who haven't even implemented a recreational program. Um, The opportunities are boundless, and most importantly, cannabis is actually good for society, so there's not a big problem that's going to come for the industry that's going to cut its legs out. The only real issue we have today is the federal government continues to say that it's illegal. And I think everybody knows that at some point that's going to change too. Um, And so there, the big things that are going to change over time are only going to be positive for the industry. Look, there's going to be tons of volatility and there are going to be little hiccups all over the place. We had a a vape crisis that was, um, you know, largely attributable to the unregulated market, but for a while. Nobody knew exactly where that was. Today, we have a coronavirus issue, and people get manufactured products from China and are dependent upon flying from state to state to conduct operations. All of those things are going to continue to happen, but the underlying fundamentals uh, about cannabis in the United States are all cutting in our favor. And that's why today I I am more bullish on the opportunity than I ever have been.
0: And you were talking about popular opinion and obviously, you know, like the way that people have perceived cannabis, right? I mean, it, it's been changing and, and people see some of the, uh, you know, the, the, the positives, you know, like in, in this segment. But, you know, I'm sure that there is certain triggers that have, that have helped on that transitioning from, from really, you know, perceiving, you know, the industry from something bad to something that, you know, could be good. So what do you think are those main triggers?
1: So the main triggers you see that there, there's stuff that that even people with um, you know that, that they, they have to be heartless to ignore um, so many times where you see uh, somebody like a like a child who has um, epilepsy that can't be treated with traditional medication get on some some combination of of CBD and THC and either reduce the number of seizures and their severity or eliminate them altogether. When you see things like that, whether you're a lawmaker and it doesn't matter what Nancy Reagan said in the eighties, you know, in, 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 in your brain uh, and in your heart that you, you have to permit access to those individuals. When large medical organizations come out and say, yeah, the facts actually do support that, that cannabis can be a, a, an effective treatment for chronic pain. You have to change your mind. And while doctors are classically trained doctors don't get the background on, on marijuana that they do on opiates, they are starting to change their opinion about what is effective. Uh, you're seeing people use it for, for pets. Um, that have issues that end up living uh, longer and healthier lives than they would have without it. Those are the kinds of things that when you actually, that's the fundamental piece about cannabis that, that, that makes it so that you, you cannot argue with the, with the idea that it is going that change is going to be positive over time. Fundamentally true that it works. And if it works um, you cannot put the genie back in the bottle.
0: Got it. And obviously, as, um, as an entrepreneur here, Steve, you know, like the, um, you're always dealing with uncertainty, especially when, when you're building and scaling a business. But I think that here you have the, the added challenge that you also have the uncertainty from the regulatory perspective. So how do you go about tackling both as an entrepreneur?
1: Well, you, you, you do it knowing... Um, that things are going to be a little bit harder, they're going to take a little bit longer, and they're going to be a little bit more expensive than you anticipate they would in a in a different environment. Um, you're going to have struggles with uh, regulators. That's just going to be a part of what happens. Um, but over time, um, regulators are going to understand that their job is to not catch bad guys, but their job is to run a good program that serves the people that it's intended to serve. And over time, when people start to realize that that is their function, uh, they're going to get it right. And so there's a there's a high degree of patience required uh, in some instances. But over time, everybody is going to get this correct. It's just for some going to take longer than others.
0: Very cool. So one of the questions, Steve, that I typically ask the guests that come on the show is, uh, knowing what you know now, I mean, obviously obviously, you've been at it for, for a while here, uh, you know, obviously with the ups, the downs, the good, the bad, the ugly, I mean, everything in between. Uh, if you had that opportunity to go back in time and have a chat with that younger Steve, perhaps that younger Steve that was starting to question, you know, like what what's, what's in it? What's next for me? Like uh, this law or shall I just go into business? And And maybe at that point where you said, maybe I go into business, if you had that chance to tell yourself, One piece of business advice, knowing what you know now, what would you tell your younger self and why?
1: That's a good question. Um, We, as an industry, um, when we, a lot of companies went public around the same time. And I had never been the CEO of a publicly traded company. And so when you go out and you're meeting very sophisticated investors and they are telling you things that you, in your mind, don't think apply to your business. But, the, but so many of them keep saying it, right? You need to hire people who are professional um, corporate managers. Um, you need to really spend a lot of time and money developing brands. Um, you need to do all of these things that, that may be uh, important long-term for a company's health, But you know, like your opportunity in Illinois, for example, if you cultivate cannabis, you're going to sell it. You're going to sell every ounce that you cultivate. So if you have one person in your marketing department or you have 100 in your marketing department, you're selling every ounce of cannabis for the same damn price. To me, the lesson that I've learned over time is sometimes you actually are, you know more about your subject area than people that you think are smarter than you are and have more experience. Um, it's true that at some point these companies will will you will need to have people that are experienced corporate managers operating and running them. But today what you need is people that are gonna roll up their sleeves and, and get dirt under under their fingernails and who are gonna dive into problems and not sit behind a desk and and develop committees and hire other people to do things. You need people who are actually ready to operate the business. We as an organization. We, we took a turn in 2019 towards growth because people told us they were going to reward growth. And we went away from some of the fundamentals of who we are. One of the things that made us really popular when we went public is that fact that I gave you before that we had spent under $18 million to develop one of the largest footprints in U.S. cannabis. And now all of a sudden in our minds and, and everybody else's, it was grow at all cost. And the answer is, you know what, that's not who you are. Um, as, as an organization and as individuals, we do certain things really well. And for us, it was operate profitable businesses. And we stopped doing it for an entire year. That's put us back, I, I think, you know, that that's been a bit of a setback for us as an organization. It's certainly one that we're going to recover from because we made investments that are going to reap benefits long term but if i had to get in my time machine and talk to steve i would i wouldn't go back that far because early on we made a lot of really good decisions i would only go far enough back to when we went public and i would say do what you do well ignore the noise um, and just run a profitable business and the rest will take care of itself so land grab and all that other stuff that people talking about, forget it. Do what you do well. That's very profound, Steve. So for the, for the folks that
0: are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi?
1: Um, well, we have all sorts of um, social media platforms, you know, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Um, you usually can find us under Harvest House of Cannabis moniker. Um, but uh, they're, you know, and we are attending all sorts of conferences all across the country all the time. So uh, we're out there and we're not that hard to find.
0: Amazing. Well, Steve, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today.
1: It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you.
0: If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help,